day here in St. Benedict, Oregon. Uh, <laughs> probably a, a more beautiful day, many of you would think, than the last time that I recorded this. The sun is shining, the birds are singing, it's uh, crisp, um, perhaps about 50 degrees, cloudless sky, sun is shining bright at my back as I'm walking westward, heading from <clears throat> Mount Angel Abbey towards the the road along a, a path here towards the main road that goes down into the town. I uh, have been reading this this uh, trilogy. It's called the Space Trilogy, written by C.S. Lewis. Really a fantastic series of books. Um, if you haven't read it, I highly recommend it. And in it. Let's tell you the basic conceit without uh, revealing any of the of the plot or too much at least. In it, um, there's this this English scholar. He's a philologist, scholar of language. In the first book, he ends up being kidnapped by two other scientists who have built a spaceship, uh, and they take him to Mars. And when he's there, he uh, ends up having a, a quite a number of adventures meeting different species of, of alien life who are very different from ourselves. But he's astonished to find in them, um, these creatures who are so completely alien, to find that they have rational minds, minds like our own, and that he can converse with them. And, and being a scholar of language, over time he learns their native tongue and begins to talk to them and get to know them and, and even to love them. And this is very different from the attitudes of his rather unwilling uh, comrades in arms, so to speak, the scientists who kidnapped him and brought him there at first against his will. Their attitude toward the, the natives is they, have, they make no attempt to get to know them, certainly to learn the language. It doesn't even enter their consideration, their frame of reference, that these beings that are so different to themselves could possibly be rational, could possibly have a human-like mind or intelligence. And note, you know, it's not simply a matter of intelligence. It's not simply a matter of um, these beasts are, <laughs> you know, capable of solving complex problems. No, no, no. It's, it's something much more fundamental about kind of the, the interior shape of who they are. Exteriorly, they're very different. But interiorly, there's a deep resonance, a similarity right, between, between these human beings and these Martians. And there are three distinct species on Mars, or as it's called in the Martian's own tongue, Malacandra. This is all taking place in the first book of the trilogy. There's three distinct species. One is called the Hrasa, and they kind of look like otters. <laughs> they live in and around the water, and they live kind of a simple life. Um, they're poets, they're singers, and, and artists, and fishermen. 
or fisher otters. <laughs> and their primary, uh, you know, way of life is very rural, very, by our standards, simple. They swim in the water, they fish on their boats. They hunt uh, this particular creature, which shows up in their lands about once a generation. You know, it's kind of this mythical uh, enemy of the Hrasa. But yet, their attitude toward it is not quite what you might expect, either. They're not, um, they're not afraid of it. They're not hunting it because they're afraid of what it will do to them. They're hunting it because they conceive of themselves as being in kind of this eternal dance, <laughs> generation after generation, themselves and their, their legendary enemy, you know. And so for the Hrasa, and this is something that our human protagonist, uh, his name is Ransom, Elwyn Ransom of Cambridge, has a very difficult time at first understanding uh, that, that, the, that the Hrasa, they don't care so much, even if they die, <laughs> in the attempt to hunt this creature. Um, their main preoccupation is just that kind of this, this dance, it's almost more of a game or a sport that it continue. That's the Hrasa. And then two other species. One is called the Soroni, the Sorns. They live high up in the mountains of Malacandra. They live solitary lives, whereas the Hrasa are, are living more uh, communally. They live together and support each other in a way that's very recognizable to us. But the Soroni live on their own. Um, they have kind of a, a solitary intellectual life and uh, it's very dominated by reason and by the intellect, whereas the hrasa are more of the artistic bent. Good morning. So we already see this, this marked difference between the two races. Um, the Soroni, they're actually living up in the heights. You know, we might have this image of the solitary intellectual locked up in his ivory tower. The Soroni kind of embody that, but with one other important difference. Um, a ransom ends up going up into the mountains to meet them, and he finds they're not at all cold, as you might expect. Rather, they're, he, he describes, I believe, their voice as being uh, like chimes with no, no blood in it. But nonetheless, um, their bloodlessness, if you will, does not make for a lack of affectivity or a lack of, of kindness. They take care of him. Um, they're very straightforward and to the point, so they're asking him questions about his own world. And as soon as it became clear that he wasn't able to tell them anymore on a given subject, they would drop it at once and go to a different one. So they show this kind of, this kind of straightforwardness. Good morning. The third race, we have the Hrasa, we have the Soroni. The third race is called the Pfiffeltrigi. And uh, these, are, these are a kind of people who live uh, underground. They live in mines. They're a bit like dwarves. And uh, they, they're very clever with their hands. Where the Hrasa are artistic in the more linguistic or, um, or verbal sense, the Pfiffeltrigi are more artistic in the sense of craftsmanship. Good morning. 
So you see how we have these three different races, three different groups, um, which are all complementary in a certain way to one another. The Hrasa, um, the language of the Hrasa is the one that all the other races on Malakandra learn to speak to each other. Why? Because the Hrasa are the best at expressing things uh, verbally. <laughs> so the other races say, there are things you can say in the tongue of the Hrasa that you can't say in any other language on Malakandra. The things the Soroni say, you can translate into any other language and it'll be exactly the same. Right, because there's, uh, it, it, it's it's entirely clear and univocal, and in a sense overdetermined. Um, so there's there's not uh, that particular nuance, which is kind of the substance of poetry, which the Hrasa language provides. And as for the Fifil Trigi, no one learns their language uh, except for themselves, <laughs> because it they're, they're, it, it it's so specialized, you know, it's specialized to their trade and to their way of life. On the other hand, uh, when Ransom is with the Hrasa, he'll often ask them questions and they'll say, we don't know. Uh, the Soroni would know. That's something, that's something to ask the Sorns, you know, and they're not ashamed of this. They're at peace with it. So they, and at the same time, Ransom uh, tries to give a, a present to one of the Sorns, his wristwatch. He tries to give it away in thanks for the good the Soroni have done to him. And the Sorn looks at it and loves it. You know, it's, it's this complicated mechanism, uh, the very kind of thing a keen, rational intellect would love to take apart and tinker with and learn how it works. But he gives it back to Ransom and says, no, this is a, a proper gift for a fiffle triggy, <laughs> not for a sorn. He'll be able to make better use of it than I can. So you see how these three races live in, in, a, in a kind of perfect harmony. And it's not the same thing as, um, we might say, equality. In this sense, they're not all identical with one another. Uh, they're not reduced to kind of a lowest common denominator. Rather, each of them excels in their own particular area according to the, the way that they were made by Maleldil, as they call God. Maleldil, the, the greatest uh, spirit, Maleldil. However, um, their own excellence uh, of each respective species does not give rise to any competition. And even in, within the species, the excellence of a particular individual is cause for them to celebrate, not for them to try to tear one another down or reduce the one to the level of the rest. And then in the second book, by a, a variety of circumstances, Ransom ends up visiting uh, another world, Paralandra, which we would know as Venus. And in this, um, he encounters something very different. Whereas Malacandra is a, an, an old world, uh, nearing its death, when he goes to Paralandra, he, he discovers that it's a young world, just born, in fact, and there are only two rational beings on the whole planet, uh, the king and the queen, who he calls the Green Lady. His mission in Paralandra, which he comes to discover over time, he's been sent there, but he doesn't know why. And his mission, in a sense, is to, to prevent uh, the fall of that world, as our own world fell in Eden at the beginning of time. So it's a very fascinating uh, conceit. You know, it's a, I, I, I've, I just finished Paralandra last night, which is why it's all so fresh in my mind. 
And uh, it, it's a fantastic story. I highly recommend it. And I won't tell you any more about it. I've told you enough already. <laughs> Hopefully enough to whet your appetite and not nearly enough to discourage you from reading the stories themselves because they're so good. But um, one more thing about, about Paralandra, and this is really what I was driving to, to tell you <laughs> in this morning's podcast. Um, when Ransom is on Paralandra, he's talking to the Green Lady. He, um, and he, he comes to discover kind of the circumstances in which he is, that, that she and the king are the only other rational beings on this world. As he's talking to her, he says, well, take me to your people. She says, what people? Do you mean the king? Ransom says, yes, all right, of course. Take me to the king. She says, I don't know where he is. <laughs> They've gotten separated. And then he, he begins to ask her more questions. He says, well, do you have any children? No. What about your parents? Where are your parents? What do you mean, parents? He says, well, your mother and father. She says, mother? I am the mother. <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> Mind blown. <laughs> Such a great scene. Oh, it's a fantastic moment. So Ransom comes to discover that she's the first, she's, the, she's, going, she's going to be the mother of the whole race, 10,000 generations of Paralandrians who are yet to be born. And furthermore, he discovers the state of original innocence in this world, that uh, it hasn't yet fallen to sin, although very soon that will, that will appear to be quite imperiled as the tempter makes his appearance. But he continues talking to the Green Lady, the Queen of Paralandra. They're discussing things... Um, they're discussing how things are on, on our own world, Earth, Thulcandra, as it's called. And on Paralandra, everything is, it's, it's just as you would imagine paradise to be, you know, like the whole world is, is this garden of Eden. And um, wherever you go, you, you find fruits, you know, just ripe for the, the plucking. Uh, the, there are animals running around of all kinds of beautiful uh, variety and diversity, wonderful colors and, and, any, and, and, and all of that. So Ransom is telling the Green Lady a bit about how life is on Earth and how people will sometimes hoard food, you know, because you never, you never know. Perhaps there'll be a bad winter coming. Uh, you might not be able to count on having food enough for next year, you know, if you eat everything that's available this year and so on. And the woman is quite puzzled by this. It's entirely outside her frame of reference, living in, in this, this paradise. And she tells him, it, it always seems to me that the best fruit is the one you have at that moment. The fruit that's given, the fruit that you're eating, is always the best fruit. It's not for us to, to choose a different fruit. She says, I might go into the, the woods with a particular fruit in mind that I desire, but the fruit that I find is the better fruit. And it would be wrong. In fact, she doesn't, she doesn't say it in precisely these words because she doesn't even have a conception of, of wrong. Her very life is to do the will of Mal-El-Dil, to do God's will. And that's her joy and her delight. So she doesn't quite say it's wrong. I forget how she puts it. But her, her meaning essentially is it would be wrong for me to cling to the idea I had beforehand of the fruit I wanted when I find the different fruit going into the woods. 
because she knows the fruit that's there, the fruit that she that's ripe for the plucking, that she can reach out and grab, that in a sense, in a very real sense in Paralandra, is the fruit that God is giving her, that that is the best fruit. The best fruit is the one you're eating. And they go on to discuss a bit about how the Eldil of our world, that means the, the angel of Thokandra, of Earth, how he was bent, <laughs> how he clung to the good that he desired, the good that he saw, rather than the good that was given. Namely, to the superiority of the angels when he learned of God's plan to exalt humankind, even above the angels. The other angels rejoiced in this, in the, in the beauty of God's will, you know, like, uh, like the custodians of a great estate, like, like the stewards who took care of it and prepared it and kept things going until the young heir grew up and then they would hand over the keys. They rejoiced in doing so, but, but not the bent one, not the Eldil of our world. He clung to the good that he knew, which was his own superiority, his own exalted status, rather than accepting the greater good that God desired to bring about. So, you know, there's a great lesson to be drawn from this for all of us, uh, for myself especially. That lesson is attachment. And for those of us who, uh, well, for those of us certainly who are Catholic, Catholics, uh, we might hear that word detachment bandied about quite a lot. And it can seem a little bit, um, not only difficult, but it, it, I think it can be a, a difficult even concept to wrap our minds around sometimes. In this sense, like what is, like what is the purpose of detachment, um, or what's the object of it? <laughs> we can often think of of things like this, a kind of ascetic, ascetic practices, asceticism, as just being like punishment, um, penance. You know, think of the medieval monks who would practice the mortification of the flesh, whipping themselves. When I was a Carmelite, we had a wonderful old priest, an Irish priest. Actually, there were a few of them living in the house. These original kind of missionaries had come over to California from Ireland to spread the faith, to establish the first Carmelite missions in this country. And a few of them were still alive, and they were living uh, at, at this monastery where we had the novitiate. And they tell us these stories. So I remember one of them telling us once, when he entered, the other brothers were all telling him, well, twice a week we go to the movies. <laughs> and he was thinking, wow, twice a week? That's, that's very generous. It's even a little excessive. <laughs> well, what he didn't realize is the movies was their euphemism for twice a week, Tuesdays and Fridays. They'd go into a darkened room, turn off the lights, and there they would chant the penitential psalms, Miserere Mei Domine, Miserere Mei, while they would practice the discipline on themselves. So he pretty quickly learned that the movies were not something to be looked forward to with much excitement. <laughs> 
you know, so we can sometimes have that image, I think, of asceticism as well. It's just, it's not just penance and it's maybe not even a very good, you know, kind of attitude toward the flesh or toward the body, this attitude of, of disciplining the self. And those of us who, who are, uh, I might say, striving to walk in the way of perfection, <laughs> striving to become saints, we can have this attitude even if we just got to grit our teeth and do it, okay? It's like, I know I got to, I know I got to practice asceticism, but wow, I just really don't want to. <laughs> and detachment seems like a form of asceticism, doesn't it? Because, because when we love something, we naturally become attached to it. When we desire something, we become attached to it. That's kind of the nature of our hearts. But the question is, is that the nature of our hearts as God made us? Or is that the nature of our hearts as we are after the fall? after our own world uh, has fallen into a state of sin and disorder. See, I think so much depends on a proper understanding of this notion of original sin. And uh, in fact, for me, as, as I was, oh, in the very earliest days, day one, okay, of my conversion, <laughs> I don't mean day one after I came into the church, I mean like the very first day I learned anything about Catholicism, and the Holy Spirit was beginning to awaken my heart and then and, and move within me. You know, the, the first thing that I read was, I believe, an article about original sin from CatholicAnswers.com. And uh, I was reflecting on this just the other day. It wasn't so much a matter of discursive um, argument or proof, right? It wasn't like it wasn't like I had my own kind of considered position and I, I had thought it all out logically and then I began to read this article and and one by one, kind of my points uh, fell. <laughs> I became convinced bit by bit until eventually I assented, you know, to the Catholic faith. No, 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 not at all. Rather, it was in reading this article, um, it was very, it was, it was truth. It was truth that convinced me, but it wasn't uh, the rational argument for truth. It was, it was the beauty of truth that seized me that fascinated me. You know, sometimes I tell my conversion story, I say, after I read that very first article about Catholicism, I was just fascinated. And I began reading more and more. Because that was what I did. That was the kind of kid I was. If I was interested in something, I'd just read about it, uh, you know, <laughs> constantly, incessantly, try to learn everything I could. And what causes that fascination was beauty. Beauty fascinates us. Goodness fascinates us. It kind of captures your heart, captivates you, makes you its prisoner and won't let you go. And in that, there's a kind of attachment. You know, so, okay, Here, here's, I guess, the point that I'm getting at. And uh, <laughs> sometimes I only discover my point as I'm saying it, so bear with me. But I think there's, there's, two, there's two truths here, you know. There's this notion of being seized by beauty captured and captivated by it and that is very good all glory be to god for that that's how that's how we're designed we're designed by god to be receptive to beauty to respond to it in that way but within that because of our our fallen nature that it is not the way god designed us but the way that we've learned in a sense to cope in a fallen world we have not just this captivation with beauty but we have this kind of attachment to beauty, you know. So we find something good, it fascinates us, 
and immediately we become attached to it. We think, I will do anything I can to hold on to this. I'll do anything I can to grasp it, to ensure that I have this. There's something even a little childish about it. You know, if you imagine a kid, uh, he thinks, <laughs> you know, wow, I'll be, I'll, be, I'll be infinitely happy if I can just get this one thing I want. If I can just get this dirt bike, if I can just get this PlayStation, you know, whatever it is, like he sets his heart on, well, just gotta have that. And if I have this, I'll be happy. And then he gets it. And perhaps for a few hours, he's happy. <laughs> and then he gets hungry or something, or <laughs> something distracts him from that experience of pleasure. And all of a sudden, it's gone. It's like a soap bubble. It bursts. Each time after that, the happiness is less. Until he sets his heart on something else. And then he thinks exactly the same thing again. I'll just be, oh, I'll be happy forever if I can just get the new PlayStation. <laughs> if I can get my new iPhone or you know, whatever it might be. And we can, we can fall into this pattern. All of us. Not just children. There's a certain childishness. Which is at the heart of all sin. And which we can all fall into. So what the green lady on Perilandra is... He's counseling Ransom, and she's not saying it to him as a warning or as advice. She's just stating it as a fact. It's simply the way she lives her life, and she can hardly imagine living any other way. It's simply this. The greatest gift is the one that God is giving, not the one that I may think is the greatest, not the one that I may have set my heart on. And if I allow myself to become attached to the good... No, she's not talking even about something evil. She's talking about something good. You know, a, a delicious fruit, a peach. I'm thinking about, oh, this most wonderful peach. <laughs> this is what I want. Got my heart set on it. I won't, I won't be satisfied until I have this, this peach. <laughs> and I, perhaps I'm living in an area where there are abundant peaches. All I have to do is go outside, go into the woods and pick one. But I'm walking walking out into the woods perhaps, and I discover as I'm going along that right in front of me is a oh, bunch of plump, fresh blueberries. You know, all around me, I'm walking through this field of blueberries. Well, the thing to do would be to, to eat the blueberries. <laughs> this is a very imperfect example. But, uh, forgive me for, forgive me for it. Nonetheless, um, this, this idea of detachment, this idea of detachment, which is not primarily an ascetic practice, you see, so often we can think, oh, okay, so uh, I'm attached to so many things, I just got to grip my teeth and give them up, you know, <laughs> got to cut myself off from these things bit by bit, so... And it's just a matter of, of suffering. I'm just gotta, just gotta embrace the cross. Okay, here we go. <laughs> well, that might work for some of us some of the time, but it's not gonna work for all of us all of the time. You know, I think we've gotta remember sometimes, and when I say we, primarily I mean myself, I've gotta remember we're not, we're not spiritual athletes. <laughs> sometimes, um, you might have this self-conception of, yeah, I'm going to make it all the way to God on my own will. Okay, here we go. I'm going to do it.
well, as one of the Desert Fathers sayings has it, um, an old man said to a young man, if you see your brother ascending to God under his own power, grab his leg and pull him down. <laughs> it will be good for him. <laughs> so detachment is not primarily about asceticism. Rather, detachment is primarily about trust and love. Trusting in God's love. Trusting in him, the one who gives the greatest gift. Not trying to store up for a winter it may never come, but if it does come, we have no guarantee that what we've stocked up will serve us well. Rather, simply to have to have faith in the one who gives all good things. Good morning. Yesterday I was walking on this path and actually I was I was out for a morning run and there was this woman walking this huge brown dog. And the dog's name was Hazel. I know that because the woman was screaming as the dog bounded away from her to chase after me. Hazel! Hazel, come back! So I think of that just now because a similar thing just happened with a little tiny beagle. <laughs> Somehow I attracted its attention. So I believe that's all that I have to say for today. This is very much a lesson that God is continuing to, to teach me. Um, this, this element of detachment because detachment, as I said, springs from faith and as we practice it, we practice it with the will that it increases our faith so it creates this almost, almost this loop where the, the one builds up the other the other strengthens the one <laughs> continual practice of detachment continues to build up our faith which continues to allow us to be more and more detached and detachment from the things that we desire only allows us to become more and more attached to the one truly good thing, which is, of course, God's will. God's will, which gives us all that we need, and not only all that we, that we require in that sense of need, but all that we need to be truly happy, all that we need for the purpose of our joy, which is the reason, of course, that we exist to begin with, to share in the joy that God has within himself, that perfect joy of the blessed trinity. So now, as we come to the end of this walk, this beautiful morning, let us pray in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Almighty, ever-living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we surrender to you all of our desires, all of our attachments. We ask you, Lord, by that loving inflow of your Spirit, come into the places of our hearts that we do not possess, those areas over which we feel we have no control. God lovingly, but indomitably, take possession of our souls, and by so doing, transform us every day, bit by bit, more and more into the fullness of your light and love and glory. We ask this through our Lord, Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Maranatha, Lord Messiah, come, Lord Jesus.
Have a blessed day. God love you.